0: Masters in Business is brought to you by Proper Cloth, the leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart-size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit ProperCloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.
1: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
0: This week on the podcast, uh, we have a repeat visit from one of our most popular guests. His name is Professor Scott Galloway. He teaches digital brands and marketing at the NYU Stern School of Business. I first kind of came into contact with Professor Galloway uh, through a famous video he did called The Four Horsemen of the Internet about Facebook, Amazon, Google, Google. And Apple. And he is one of those people who is just a fascinating study, uh, a person who does deep dives into the things we kind of take for granted about technology, about marketing, about how we interact with some of our favorite products. Uh, And he does it in a way that's not purely academic. He formed a number of companies. Um, uh, L2, Red Envelope, Profit, and and sold them for uh, tons of money. And and so he's more than just a theoretician. He's an actual practitioner. He's always fascinating. We always have a, a delightful conversation every time I, I have him in the studio. Uh, he has a new book coming out next year, so we'll have an excuse to bring him back when that uh, comes out. In the meantime, w- uh, with no further ado, my conversation— with scott galloway
1: this is masters in business with barry ritholtz on bloomberg radio
0: my special guest today is professor scott galloway he hails to us from nyu stern school of business he is the author of the digital iq index a global ranking of prestige digital competence he has been ranked one of the world's 50 best business school professors he founded several companies, Red Envelope, Profit, L2. He has also been recognized by the World's Economic Forum as one of the global leaders of tomorrow. Professor Scott Galloway, welcome back to Bloomberg. Thanks, very Good to see you. What brought you to my attention a few years ago was a video that you had done. It was a conference appearance about the four horsemen, mm-hmm. and they were Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. So- So why don't we start with those? Sure. Uh, Let's talk about Google. In a recent L2 video you did, and you also speak every year at the uh, Digital Brands Conference, DLD, I think it is. DLD in
1: Munich, great conference. Um,
0: You talked about Google lowered its price 11%. Mm Mm-hmm. And yet, it increased its total ad revenue twenty percent. Mm-hmm. They seem to really be dominating online advertising.
1: Can you imagine how difficult it all this, whether whether you're competing with them, your Clear Channel Outdoor, uh, your uh, the New York Times, your Hearst, and you have a company that's able to a competitor that's able to increase its revenues twenty three percent and lower its prices eleven percent? And initially, the analysts thought that was a sign of weakness because their cost per click was going down. But effectively, Google every year gets more and more competitive. It's like, how do you know if an industry is ripe to be disrupted? They, r- they raise their prices faster than inflation with no underlying increase in innovation. You could argue that media or television is incredibly ripe to be disrupted. Mm-hmm. Increase their prices much faster than inflation, while viewership has gone down. Whereas Google is probably the least disruptable business right now in media because every year it gets substantially better and they keep lowering their prices.
0: So the other. Um Leader in, in digital advertising is mm-hmm. Facebook. Yep. Uh, are they ever going to be able to
1: give Google a run for their money? Oh, they already are. I mean, between the two of them, and it really is a duopoly. Mm-hmm. If you look at all of digital marketing, um, Facebook and Google accounted for 103% of the growth. Now, what does that mean? It means that if you aren't Facebook or Google, And you're in digital marketing. (laughs) Officially, the industry is in structural decline. Mm -hmm. So if you work for anyone these ad tech platforms, search engine optimization, an agency doing media planning online, your business like newspapers and magazines is in decline. So let's talk a little bit about Facebook.
0: You said Mm -hmm. their pivot to mobile Mm -hmm. was one of the greatest shifts of a
1: large corporation- in history. Yeah, arguably the most agile company in the world. Three years ago, 0% of the revenue from mobile. Mark Zuckerberg said he did not believe in kind of the app economy, he thought it was all going to be about browsers. And he was wrong and pivoted and you know, turned the fire hose of great management, great engineering talent. And now I think about 83%, 85% of the revenue comes from mobile. It's 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 hard to imagine a pivot. We all saw mobile coming, but Yahoo mm-hmm. wasn't able to get to 80%. The New York Times wasn't. It, this is this is the most impressive agile pivot, I think, in the history of business.
0: Now you've also previously
1: called them one of the greatest bait and switch sure. setups of all time. Why is that? So the general, the general promise from uh, Facebook was invest in your Facebook page, Nike, and you're gonna have this incredible asset. You're gonna have a captive marketing or a captive asset, which will be people who have raised their hand and said, I have an affinity for Nike, and then you'll be able to communicate directly to them that you'll have an asset. In order to build this asset, you had to advertise. And Nike and other firms spent millions of dollars advertising to build their fan community. And it was nice because it had this vanity metric of how many fans you had. Mm-hmm. It became a symbol of whether a company got it or not based on how many how many fans you had on Facebook. And then once kind of that, that hundreds of millions of spending to build these communities was sort of done, Facebook turned around and said, just kidding. If you want to reach these people, you've got to advertise. And organic reach, that is the percentage of Nike's messages that reach their end fans, went from 100% down to 8, 5, or 3. It's tantamount to you building a house, putting the finishing touches on it, putting the lock on the door, and then the county shows up and says, just kidding, you don't own the house. We do. I think this was one of the greatest bait and switches in corporate history,
0: what did that do to the trust factor of corporations wanting
1: to advertise on Facebook? Uh, I think it was temporary because there's so much momentum. It's such an outstanding product. They have such power that, and uh, and quite frankly, also I think they've done such a great job managing their image because I think their management team is likable, which I think is incredibly important. People have largely overlooked that if you wanna if you wanna figure out a way to like somebody, you figure it out.
0: What about ad fatigue? Is something that certainly is an issue these days.
1: Yes. Yeah, so the the engagement levels, the percentage of people interacting with a piece of content on Facebook, are seventeen uh, percent of their posts are sponsored, meaning they're basically advertising and inserted in, right into your right wall. into your feed. One out of mm-hmm. six pieces of content is is someone's paying to get in front of you. Interrupt, interruption advertising, no different than television. However, the interaction or the percentage of people who are liking, sharing, or commenting on that comment on that content has declined 20% in the last nine months. So you are seeing what you would call ad fatigue low. Now, having mm-hmm. said that, they have other properties and tons of different ways to monetize, but the core platform does, ex- does seem to be experiencing ad fatigue. And
0: what about Facebook Live and Facebook Native Stories? Is that going anywhere, or what, what's the outlook on that?
1: So I, I, I personally believe the, the the biggest innovation or the most, the thing to watch right now is uh, from our, one of their properties, Instagram, specifically Instagram Stories, because it is squarely going after Snapchat. And what's interesting, and I think the most interesting piece of data in the world of media right now is to look at Snapchat's user growth and daily active users once Instagram launched Stories a direct competitor. And what you've seen is Snapchat's growth has decelerated dramatically since Instagram launched Stories. So people think Snapchat is the Facebook of video. My thesis is that in fact, Facebook is the Facebook of video (laughs) and it's coming after Snapchat. And it's fun to speculate, but I think Snapchat goes public, goes crazy on first day of trading because people haven't had access to a unicorn in a while. But I think it's gonna be ground zero for ringing the bell at the top and be one of the greatest, uh, I, I think we're setting ourselves up for something that might be the spark that torches the market with Snapchat.
0: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Scott Galloway of NYU Stern School of Business. He is an expert on internet technology, digital marketing, branding. And let's talk about one of the biggest companies in that space, Amazon. Last time you were here, we Mm -hmm. talked about uh, why you thought the stock was overvalued and wouldn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. You very famously issued a mea culpa Mm -hmm. online, said pretty much that marked the start of the next
1: major leg up. Um, What do we think of Amazon today? So first off, yeah, I I was 110% wrong on that. My initial thought was that The future is about multi-channel retail. Their fulfillment costs were escalating, and I thought that they were going to need to buy a multi-channel retailer. The
0: delivery costs also had had has gone up in billions. Yeah,
1: it continues to, but now now people see it as an asset, not a liability, and and there's some some merit to that. So uh, at the time, I thought, okay, Apple would be the first trillion-dollar company because somebody's going to get there. And what Apple's pulled off is exceptional lowest price or low cost provider because of their supply chain power, but at the same time, the margins premium price products, So the, the volumes of Toyota with the margins of Ferrari, which makes for the most profitable company in history. Now, Amazon, Amazon is the most disruptive company in the largest economy in the world. And if you look at the moats and the number of distinct businesses they would have that would probably be greater than $100 billion businesses on their own, they have the most. Apple's right up there, but now you have AWS, um, you have the core platform itself, it looks as if Amazon Prime and their media properties are turning into a juggernaut. I also believe the real growth business for them is that they're going into the business of selling picks as opposed to mining for gold, leasing planes, leasing tractor trailers. Um, they're going after FedEx and UPS. 120 billion in market cap between DHL, FedEx, and UPS. And I think Amazon's decided they want most or all of it. I think most of us are uh, who have e-commerce companies or brands are going to start using Amazon uh, not only as a, as a platform with the Amazon Marketplace, but using Amazon to deliver the last mile.
0: When you say AWS, you're
1: referring to the cloud services that they offer. 100%. I,
0: I have a funny Amazon story. So I have a treadmill in, in my basement, and mm-hmm. I have a tel- flat panel TV, mm-hmm. f- which have plummeted in price. Smart TVs, mm-hmm. 55 inches, $400. I want to hang it. Uh, you know, I, I, it sits there for a week with a drill for a mm-hmm. month. Finally, I'm like, All right, I'm going to go back to the store I got it and have mm-hmm. them hang it. They want more to hang the TV mm-hmm. than the TV cost. And so I start looking on, let me find a place to look online. And I never even heard of Amazon Home Services. Mm-hmm. What is this? It's $69. The, mm-hmm. the, uh, one of the local stores wanted four fifty dollars to hang it. So I set up an appointment. The guy shows up. He hangs the TV for $69. Bucks. I say, who else do you work with? And he mm-hmm. reels off everybody. And I I said, those are all wildly disparate price points. Mm -hmm. He goes, I get paid the same. It's the same drill. It's the same stuff. He Mm -hmm. goes, I've done three houses on a block where the costs are $69, $300, and $500. It's me. And then I start looking at the Amazon services that are offered. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much everything for your house. Where are they going to stop growing? Where do they draw the line? Or are they just completely, no market is uh, too far for them.
1: I think when it comes to your low consideration purchases or your high consideration purchases that you don't enjoy, auto insurance, mm-hmm. I think Amazon wants all of it. And it, it, what's interesting about Amazon and one of the s- incredibly impressive things, uh, the hardware innovation of 2016, uh, even though it came out earlier in that, was the Echo. And if you have, do you have an Amazon Echo? No. I do not. So you get one of these things and it literally kind of blows your mind because you get a glimpse into what the future of retail and commerce might be. You could you put these things around your house and literally at this void at this volume you know you say alexa and it says yes and you make a request order an uber add tide to my shopping basket and when you start thinking about the frictionless nature of voice you start thinking about Amazon's purchase history, the fact they have your credit card, one-click ordering, the reputation for value they have, the fact that they have a warehouse within 20 miles of 45% of the population, which is mis- it's misleading, because it's really 80% of the disposable income of the mm-hmm. US. You have what I believe, and by the way, I don't know this, I don't work directly with Amazon. I believe where they're headed is something called Prime Squared or some something similar to that. They'll announce a test area and they'll say, Barry. We know a lot about you. We're gonna install these echoes all over your house. Whenever you need anything, you calibrate up or down. We send you two boxes three times a week. One's with your stuff, the second you put stuff that you don't want back in the box and we calibrate some more. And over time, we're gonna take your entire retail ecosystem off the table from everybody else and mm-hmm. 80 90% of everything you order in your life that you don't enjoy ordering. You enjoy looking for cars. You want to go you want to go buy mm-hmm. that BMW Z8. Your wife wants to buy that pair of Christian Louboutins. The other 95% of stuff you don't enjoy buying, Amazon is going to do for you automatically. They're going to do a test most likely in a college town. They're going to announce they're going to take Prime from $1300 a year to 8000. The stock's going to become per a, per user per household, the stock's going to become anti-gravity and go to a trillion dollars. I think Amazon's the first one to get So
0: that. here's why I haven't gotten the Echo. I have two experiences, three mm-hmm. experiences, with voice recognition software. One is Google Voice, yep. which is sort of a hilarious garbled mm-hmm. thing. The second is Siri, Siri. Yeah, which-, which if you read the Dem, you AutoCorrect, is one of the funniest collection of, mm-hmm. of typos, and we've all experienced really embarrassing things because of the way that works. So I looked at Echo as- just another mediocre voice recognition product. You're telling me that's not true.
1: Well, they're trying to Google and Apple are trying to. It's probably more ambitious. They're trying to do it more around utility. Like find find me an Applebee's or how do I get here or call Barry. Mm-hmm. Alexa is all right. Get me information. Use it for a search engine. My son does it to test his geography skills and capital skills. But they're positioning it around commerce. And when you think about the easiest place to make decisions around commerce seamlessly, saying, Alexa, you know, barbecue eight people Friday night, and it immediately goes into your purchase history, your preferences, your brand preferences, and puts together a package of additional, additional ribs, imported beer, but IPA, because that's what you like, and then a selection of stuff, and it begins to calibrate and can get it there within two hours because of their fulfillment network. You at some point just sort of throw in the towel and realize that, Amazon is the only retailer that matters, is mm-hmm. the only retailer I need in my life. And as we get more, we get busier and busier and suffer from more and more time poverty, the opportunity for voice, artificial intelligence, and the incredible investment they've made in fulfillment infrastructure will result in a value proposition where you might decide all the shopping and decisions I make around commerce in my life, except for the ones I love, I am just going to outsource to Amazon. You also have an Amazon to a certain extent. The game is sort of already over. I play I play Texas Hold'em poker every, every few weeks with a bunch of guys. And at some point when one player has most of the chips, he or she's already won because mm-hmm. they can muscle everybody out by just going all in until they finally win. Amazon basically is at that point. Their access to capital is probably, they've had access to cheaper capital for longer than probably any company in modern history. And as a result, they're basically muscling everybody out.
0: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Scott Galloway. He is a professor of brand strategy and digital marketing at the NYU Stern School of Business. He is the author of the Digital IQ Index, named one of the world's 50 best business school professors. He's founded and sold a number of of companies. We were talking about Amazon before and how they had a clearly defined mission, what is the problem with Apple's mission description?
1: Well, there, there isn't one. It, the others have very succinct and compelling missions that are the, the, invest, the investment community understands and demands. Apple does not. It's not entirely clear what Apple is trying to achieve long term. So as a result, Apple has become a, what have you done for me lately in the investment market? It's mm-hmm. evaluated in the context of every product release. And if that product doesn't revolutionize the world, which many have... The stock gets taken down, so you have, you have uh, the other horsemen, Facebook, Amazon, and Google trading at anywhere between kind of twenty and sixty times EBITDA, and you have Apple trading at seven to ten. So you could argue Apple could be the first trillion dollar company if it just got a story, if it just said, "This is what we're about and where we're headed." So I'm a Mac head,
0: going dating back to my 1989 classic Mac Classic, mm-hmm. and to me, the Apple story was always. It just works. Mm-hmm. When the competition was Compaq, HP, mm-hmm. IBM, Dell, mm-hmm. um, they didn't just work. Windows back in those days was a, it was a nightmare. Yep. And we've seen a variety of, of innovations, starting with the iPod. There was nothing new about that technology. It was mm-hmm. all off-the-shelf stuff. Mm-hmm. They put it together in a way nobody else did. iPod, iPhone, iPad, iWatch. hmm have they run out of innovation or or are we still milking the last five major products?
1: So that seems to be the key question. A lot of people would say, are AirPods really the design breakthrough, the, you know, the, the wireless earpieces? Is the Apple Watch really kind of the legacy of the most creative industrial engineers in the world? So a lot of people would say that, I would say that Apple is p- theoretically suffering from low T. <laughs> it appears as if it's it's lost its mojo. Having said that, you know, it just has so it has such an incredible brand. It has so much credibility around anything, you know, any item. And quite frankly, it's trading it. It still trades it Cheap. You know, it feels you're you're in this business, right? It doesn't yeah. feel expensive. It feels like I mean, basically, Barry, it's up twenty percent in the last couple months because people just with no real catalyst.
0: So here's here's the crazy data point we pulled together when we were we we're doing research for for this show. You take the Apple cash hoard, just the mm-hmm. cash dollars it has. There are only 13 companies in the S&P 500 that their entire worth is mm-hmm. greater than Apple's cash hoard. That That's astonishing data point, which, which raises the question what they should do with all that cash. But let's come back to that. I want to talk about the Apple Watch, mm-hmm. which people have called kind of a failure. But when you look at the numbers, mm-hmm. and when you look at what they've done to the Swiss watchmaking group. Let's talk about that. Is the Apple Watch a success or a failure? I notice you're not wearing one.
1: I'm not. So the- Nor am I. First off, and this goes back to what Apple strength is. This thing on my wrist, I haven't wound it in five years. If (laughs) I'm honest with with myself, it's my attempt to signal masculinity and success to the opposite uh, opposite sex. I think men who wear expensive watches are basically trying to communicate- to women, if you mate with me, your kids are more likely to survive than if they mate with someone wearing a swatch watch. So,
0: so this is a uh, Darwinian- These are feathers,
1: period. Oh, Full okay. stop feathers. They have no very little utility. Mm-hmm. And Apple's genius has been figuring out a way to make a tech item feathers. Apple has effectively decided they want, out of the technology- Hardware business, which trades at a multiple of EBITDA, and they want to be in the luxury business, which trades at a multiple of revenues. It's a far superior business. The only way they can sustain their margins is by having what we would refer to as self-expressive benefit. Mm -hmm. Apple has become the ultimate display of wealth. If you do a heat map by operating system, Android versus iOS, it is a heat map of wealth. Manhattan lights up iOS, you go into the suburbs, it's Android. The new feather. If you have an iPhone, it means you're more likely to be successful, educated, and have a random sexual experience. This is <laughs> this is the reason that they have the highest margins in that industry. And the iPhone is the first technology product whose margins have not eroded as the product has matured because they've figured out it's a luxury brand, it's not a technology brand.
0: So one of your presentations, you talk about the mobile phone as the defining technology of our age. Sure, Apple captures 92% of the profits. Samsung captures 13 to 14%, which includes some overlap
1: because mm-hmm. they're a big supplier to Apple. Mm-hmm. The rest of the industry are negative. Fights the losses. And Apple versus Samsung is illuminating because they've taken different approaches. Samsung invests two to three times the amount of their top line revenues in traditional advertising and digital marketing. So, what does Apple do with all that excess capital? They have opened stores. Most people would say that Apple's genius has been the iPhone. I would argue that Apple's genius move over the last 13 years was building 450 temples to the brand in 18 markets called stores.
0: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Scott Galloway. He is a professor of digital brands and marketing at NYU Stern School of Business. Last time we had you on, you Mm -hmm. caused a little bit of um, controversy uh, with your infamous letter about millennials. We talked about it. So let me ask you the
1: question. Mm-hmm. Do you love or hate millennials? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, it's easy to hate millennials, but I would for all the complaints that business owners um, put forward, at the, at the end of the day, there's two sides of the transaction. And the reason why we put up with millennials, and they are more expectant, more difficult to manage, is because they're more talented than we were at their age. Mm-hmm. The access to technology... The increase in education, more kids are um, graduating from uh, college is exceptional. The, the kid, They are the most talented generation. There's a price to it, though. They want to talk about their careers. When I got my first job at Morgan Stanley at a UCLA, we had a career talk once a year in the form of a bonus, and it lasted about 15 minutes, mm-hmm. and that was about it. It was So the notion of going into my boss's office and saying, I want to have a career talk you know t- six weeks after I started, <laughs> I mean, I, can't, I can't even fathom the response I, b- I would have received, but they throw the you a, out, it would have been the response at L2. The most inspiring people that I think the thing I enjoy the most is um, is the kids. The we have some 22 to 28 year olds, and I would describe them, and this is a sexist statement and mostly women, mm-hmm. and 70% of high school valedictorians are now women, mostly athletes, the competitive grit in their background, and And it's kind of passe to say that I'm not not necessarily think it's a good thing, but went to outstanding universities. They have Mm -hmm. real academic, uh, strong academic training from the best institutions. These people are, you know, they feel as if they could be the junior senator from Pennsylvania, these 26-year-olds. They are (laughs) so inspiring. At the same time, they're used to feedback. They're used to recognition. They're used to clarity around roles and compensation. And these are all things, when you think about it, we demand as we get older and we have more currency in the marketplace. They've just figured it out earlier. The ones that aren't good, it seems to have. You know, they don't maybe don't have the skills, but they seem to hold on to some of the negative attributes, and those are the ones that get all the all the press. But on the whole, millennials have built L two for us, and I'm 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 a fan. The fascinating thing is for guys who are
0: our age, and we're not that far apart in years. Technology is something we've learned. For yeah. them, it's a, a, a it's native a language. It's yeah. something they grew up with as infants. You start playing with a, an iPad in they the just crib, get it. right? I just it, get it. it. It's just there. Um, all right, so let's let's talk about some of the other things that, for for those of you listening, you should definitely check out Professor Galloway's uh, videos on YouTube. They're incredibly informative and often entertaining. Uh, a line you said not too long ago, I thought was fascinating, is. Advertising is a tax on the poor.
1: Explain. Mm-hmm. So effectively, technology is allowing us to opt out of advertising. I, I love Modern Family. I don't know if you watch Modern sure. Family. Sure. Great. But I now download it from iTunes for two ninety nine, even though I could download it as quickly from ABC.com, because ABC.com makes me watch nine minutes of commercials. Mm-hmm. I think just as we become numb to mass shootings in the US, we become na- numb to advertising. I think advertising is so ubiquitous, but at the same time, so... Terrible. We were talking about age. I'm at a. I've worked out my whole life. I'm at an age where I can no longer do impact sports. So I'm swimming, mm-hmm. and swimming is typically the first few minutes are shock your system. No fun. I'm not going to be able to do this very long. Then you get into a rhythm and you get going. I think great storytelling on television is like that, where it takes a while, sometimes two or three episodes mm-hmm. into the season to really get into it. I find I'm just finally starting to get into season six. I think it is of Homeland. I equate advertising to your first 11 minutes in the pool and then someone takes an enormous dump in the pool and they <laughs> it's shocking it's out of character it's it's disturbing you have to stop swimming and listen to and clean it up for 2 minutes that is advertising So technology is allowing us to opt out. You're going to have the NewYorkTimes.com without advertising soon. And the reality is they don't get that much money from you. It is such a game of scale. The New York Times only gets $2.70 a year for littering that that gorgeous journalism with all sorts of ads. Modern Family only gets $0.55 an episode per viewer. Business Insider... Barry only gets $0.65 a year for making you endure all those irrelevant, obsolete, and obtuse ads that slow the load time. Advertising is becoming a tax, the poor and the technologically illiterate pay. So what does that
0: mean to companies like Google and Facebook if we're just becoming oblivious
1: to these ads? Well, Google, you're sort of asking for the ads. I mean, Google has the most relevant ads in the world because you're the one saying, I'm interested in auto insurance. And then it says, all right, these are the organic listings by auto insurance companies or articles on auto insurance that have credibility or that people search for. But along the right rail, we're going to let auto insurance companies advertise. So it's almost like you're asking for the advertising. Mm -hmm. Facebook is still interruption advertising. I think they're going to have to get into different businesses because I do think there is at some point, every media company is going to have to offer a non-ad-supported product. But these, these companies, their content is so compelling. I mean, most, probably most successful media company in the world, uh, Google, because you've wanted the ads. I would say the second most successful media company in the world the last 30 years, Bloomberg. And guess what? It's not ad-supported, it's subscription-based. Right. A survivability index for all media companies globally is very easy. Take the percentage of the revenues they're getting from subscription versus advertising. The part of this house that makes a ton of money, it's 100% a subscription. Payment, subscription.
0: Right. So the more advertising, the weaker the
1: longevity You'd rather be forecast. HBO than ESPN right now.
0: You referenced not too long ago the Winner Take All Society, which was a book in the mid-90s by Robert Frank, mm-hmm. a prior guest on Masters in Business, mm-hmm. and essentially says no matter where you look, you can look in sports, you can look at actors, you can look at music, you can look in companies- there's a winner in a given space, and then everybody else comes in third. What does this mean for technology? What does this mean for content?
1: It's dramatic, and, and you, you do this for a living. There, are, Of the S&P 500, uh, there are only 13 companies that, that beat the index five years in a row. That's unbelievable. So every, you know, it's, it's never been better to be a winner. And unfortunately, we have this lottery economy. Because those companies get a tremendous amount of heat in advertising and publicity, we assume there are more winners than there are. Mm-hmm. Now the winners are enormous. You, you hit it. You, you hit a it big. It's never. It's never been a better time to remark, be remarkable. Access to global markets, the ability to scale your intellectual property, the ability for good products and good people to get it out there on whether it's LinkedIn or Facebook or just consumer discovery. There's never been a worse time to be good. It, it, you know, it's the way I think of it is when I got out of business school, we all made eighty-five thousand dollars, and some made seventy, and some made hundred. But now in my class, I teach two classes, 120 kids. I can tell you there's going to be a billionaire in one of my classes tonight. One of the things you said
0: was that it's never been easier. I'm, I'm going to just keep throwing your own quotes sure. at you. It's never been easier
1: to be a billionaire in this society, and it's never been harder to become a millionaire. The compact is breaking down. You you, you go to undergrad, you study hard, you get a good job, you go to graduate school, you're a good citizen, you work hard, you get the credentials. You 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 get a partner that's also uh, you know a, a contributor to you economically. It's not unreasonable to think you could save a million bucks over mm-hmm. 20, 30, 40 years and retire a millionaire. That's getting harder and harder to do. But at the same time, everyone has an outside shot at becoming part of something unbelievable and becoming a billionaire. The other kids in my class, I think there's gonna be a, a decent non-zero percentage of my class that's gonna end up getting unlucky, Getting a getting having some dents in their career background, which by the way they won't be able to gloss over because LinkedIn Nothing creates tremendous away. transparency, and will be excluded from quote unquote the information economy, and will end up you know, living with their parents until they're fifty or sixty. We are we are entering an economy where it's winner take all, and we don't have you know we don't believe in income distribution. We like to, because there's some very well advertised success stories. People would rather, everybody, if people play the lottery because sure. it's it statistically is bad for us. We know it's not good, but hey baby, uh, my numbers are gonna win. My wife teaches fashion illustration and
0: design to high school students. And in the high school, they actually, when they're doing career counseling with these kids, warn them, you anything you put on Facebook, anything you put on Instagram, anything you put on Twitter, is part of your permanent record. And you are affecting your career chances 10, 20, 30 years down the road, this stuff never goes away. It's a new credit score. It's unbelievable. Um, Let's talk, since I mentioned Twitter, let's talk about Twitter. Another quote of yours, a good board cannot save a bad company, but a bad board can ruin a good company. What's the problem with Twitter?
1: Uh, A negligent board, unforgivable. Uh, The fact that they've decided that whatever it is, 2,000 employees, a great product should be subject uh, or should be led by a part-time employee. Meeting the CEO, CEO, and i, I don't know him. I, I, I my—he sounds like a product visionary, but to say that a company is complicated, an environment is competitive, where as many people, uh, where they have as many investors, where they have as many people trying to make a living from the fortunes or misfortune of Twitter, to decide that a part-time CEO is the right guy—how do you say to the rest of the management team? By the way, almost all of whom have left. Mm-hmm. This thing is like rats off a ship right now. <laughs> how do you say to them? This guy at 25 hours a week is better than you at 50 hours a week. And, and it's such a great platform, and too. It's a fantastic product. You you literally have negligence on behalf of the board to put up with this. It's part of our idolatry of innovators. A young guy who's very impressive shows up in a black turtleneck neck and they think, we've reincarnated Steve Jobs. And he they did it take, with Pixar and Apple. And they, uh, it is very, a very dangerous strategy to compare anyone to Steve Jobs That's and right. assuming it's going to happen again. So we end up like in an abusive relationship. We end up taking abuse that we shouldn't. It's it's ridiculous. He's going to go down. Uh, he's going to go down as one of the worst CEOs in tech, and mm-hmm. it's not his fault. It's his board's fault. Boards have a fiduciary responsibility. The board of Twitter is negligent.
0: We have been speaking with Professor Scott Galloway of NYU Stern. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things digital. We love your comment, feedback, and suggestions. Please write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on bloombergview.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Hey, guys, let me ask you a question. Do you have trouble finding dress shirts that fit? Well, thanks to Proper Cloth, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. At propercloth.com, you can literally order a high-quality, perfect-fitting custom shirt in less than five minutes. Create your custom size by answering just 10 simple questions. No need for measuring tape or trips to the tailor. Perfect fit is guaranteed Remakes are completely free, and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom shirts made smarter. Welcome to the podcast, Uh, Professor Galloway. Thank you so much uh, for being Scott. I don't know what the hell to call you. Scott's good. Scott's good. During the break, we were talking about what happened to comments in general, and Mm -hmm. I said- When I was writing Bailout Nation, I would put a post up online, do 500 to 700 words. People Mm -hmm. would give me comments, suggestions, ideas, sources. I was writing that in real time relative to the crisis. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was due August 30th, uh, 2008. And Mm -hmm. then that weekend when it was due, all all hell broke loose. Mm -hmm. And so it it got extended till December 31st. But I'm writing it in real time. Mm My readers are really my co-authors. They mm-hmm. did a tremendous amount of work. You publish a ton,
1: especially on YouTube. Mm-hmm. What's going on with some of the comments on, on YouTube? What is that like? So 95 to 98% of them are really supportive, interesting dialogue. The comments, when they don't agree with you, are generally respectful. But that 2 or 3% can be pretty rattling. And everybody, I like to put up this persona that, oh, I don't care, I can take it, I don't care what other people think. Thick
0: skin. Yeah,
1: and it rattles me. It sounds, mm-hmm. you, when people really say these incredibly personal, and, and what's weird is some of them seem to research you and try and find something that's gonna gonna upset you or even, even frighten you. So there's an element of it that's really disturbing. What's interesting, though, is that if you think about th- this notion of identity, and that is, Facebook forces you to say who you are in and real put life. Some feature, and it's created, I think, a more civil platform. Mm-hmm. And even when you think about the power of identity around Uber, you wouldn't get in the back seat of a driver that hadn't been vetted. Sure. seeing his or her face makes you feel more comfortable. And they wouldn't likely let a stranger get in the back seat that they couldn't track down with their credit card number or their identity. So this notion of identity, as it relates to Facebook. Uber, and even Airbnb, I would argue that the identity technology is really what's made Airbnb, Airbnb a 25 or $30 billion company or value company, mm-hmm. is a really powerful notion in the internet age. But I think it's good that people, that platforms decide to force people to say, this is who I am, and it creates a more civil environment. Because all of a sudden, people turn very mean online.
0: Your colleague at NYU, Arun Sundarajan, yeah. his book on the sharing economy goes over how Originally, the eBay rating system 100%. led to companies like
1: Airbnb and you Uber and everything. Thank you. Else. I should have referenced him. My whole song I just busted into around identity. Mm-hmm. I was I was IP theft from Professor Cinderajan. I but, got it from Arun, so Arun's a friend. So I absolutely was. I ripped off his comments there. I,
0: I use NYU as a uh, <laughs> as my research bench. I, I think I've had six different professors from NYU, and if you add in Columbia, I think we're up to ten. That's good the, to hear. the the academic intellectual capital in New York with Wharton an hour that way and yeah. Yale an hour that way is just it's an astonishing amount of a, we have to get you out to one of the uh, the dinners we have with various Nobel Prize like uh, people um so the other thing I wanted to ask you about relevant to um, relevant to the to the comment situation is, what does that have to, with Facebook, mm-hmm. since they're making you identify who you are, instead of having really vociferous comments, you end up with fake news that gets passed along repeatedly. That seems to be the Facebook equivalent of the the angry egg on mm-hmm. Twitter mm-hmm. Um, or just the insane comment on YouTube.
1: Well, the scandal of we talked about Echo being the product of 2016. The scandal of 2016, and we we just don't know it yet, was fake news. It's going to get, it's going to get bigger and bigger in terms of the damage we we perceived or that has actually happened to society. Sixty percent of our news is now digested and absorbed from social media. of the news coming out of social media the week running up to the election was fake news. Really? And one of the issues I personally have with Google and Facebook is this notion that if you look at their vocabulary and words matter, they're trying to avoid the word media to describe their companies. Mm -hmm. They're saying they're platforms. And the analogy I would use, Barry, is that if McDonald's said, all right, 80% of the beef we're serving you is fake and giving you encephalitis, and as a result, you're making bad decisions. <laughs> Mad cow disease? We're not responsible for it because we're not a fast food restaurant. We're a fast food platform. And I think these companies trying to absolve themselves of the responsibility and the damage they've done by calling themselves platforms and not media companies. By the way, they're media companies. They create content. They sell advertising against that content. Boom, you're a media company. But they need to do everything a quarter of the fact-checking and the resource investment that the New York Times and Bloomberg make in ensuring that what mm-hmm. we are digesting is not fake and making us sick. This is the scandal of 2016, hugely damaging to our society. There
0: was just an article in the New York Times this weekend about, you know, there's all sorts of, of ransomware. Mm-hmm. Um not so much where they're taking over your computer, but there mm-hmm. are people who have figured out how to game Google's search algorithms, mm-hmm. and so they dig up You want to talk about digging up stuff? They dig up from people uh, Because it's public, we've mm-hmm. moved all this stuff from the, from the government sphere to the public sphere, uh, um, mugshots. Someone's mm-hmm. arrested 40 years ago, 30 mm-hmm. years ago, for driving under the influence. That mm-hmm. mugshot is there it shows up in the first page of Google searches. Mm -hmm. And Google, and so it's not, it says it's there for information purposes. They will take the mugshot down for Mm -hmm. a fee. And that sort of
1: um, blackmail shouldn't be, uh, Google has a responsibility for that. Well, uh, I I do think of that as different because you can make a bomb threat with a phone and I don't think the phone company is liable. But when when The search algorithm, but, but but I do think it's different when Facebook is is got 80% of the content flowing through its platform is fake news. Mm-hmm. They know. Is it, it. that much? Is well, it 80%? Especially the week leading up to the election about 80% of the news coming out on the candidates was quote-unquote fake news uh-huh. cause the respective parties turned up turned up the volume. I think at that point when their when their 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 media channels their platform have literally become totally toxic and totally mm-hmm. misleading. I think they have a responsibility to make a statement. And what they've done so far is they're so remiss to alienate anyone on the far left or the far right because as Michael Jordan said, Republicans buy shoes too. They, mm-hmm. they, everybody watches ads, so we don't care how crazy you are. We, w- we don't want to alienate anybody. Uh, we want the entire market, we want everyone watching on, on our platform and it, it's sort of enough is enough. They're going to have to come up with some standards, kick some people off, squelch some content, Be acu- and they'll be accused of censorship. But they're going to have to act in the same way a lot of these media companies, including Bloomberg, Hearst, Connelly. There's going to have to be something resembling editorial standards.
0: You there. need to lose the 10% that's toxic. and Otherwise, they're, from a business perspective, they're putting the 90% at risk, the people they're monetizing. It, once people come to realize, hey, this platform is a disaster. I think that's been Twitter's big mistake. And they're just now taking steps to not so much kick people off the platform. The latest thing I've been reading about is if you're identified as a troll or someone who is harassing people because they're gay or black or Mm -hmm. Jewish or what have you, or Muslim, Mm -hmm. um, they're basically not going to let you put names in tweets. So you'll be able to harass people without identifying them and it's it's just lost in the breeze. No one will see it or
1: hear it. But and this is this is, you know, this gets me into trouble. but effectively, most of the leadership of these companies wrap themselves in a progressive blanket mm-hmm. to a certain extent because a, I think they have personally those viewpoints, but also it's awfully convenient because as a whole, progressives are perceived as being uh, Forward-thinking. really nice but weak and conservatives are seen as being smart but mean. And if a smart but mean person was running the most powerful company in the world, Google, Facebook, Amazon, or Apple, regulators would step in early. So it's convenient for them to be seen as kind of nice and cuddly and granola. Uh-huh. But the reality is, I don't think you can really claim to be a progressive if the company that you have a lot of power of has become weaponized by the far right. So I see hypocrisy every, everywhere here. These companies, these, these individuals prostitute their progressive values in order to soften the image of their companies such that they avoid regulatory scrutiny, at the same time they have allowed their companies to be weaponized by the far right. I find, it, I find contradiction in it everywhere.
0: Uh, I use, um, I've done a lot of work and a lot of writing on minimum wage, and mm-hmm.
1: I've been talking about,
0: we have this grand experiment going on in Seattle and San Francisco and other cities that have been aggressively raising their, their minimum wage. Google what is the minimum wage for Seattle, and it comes up $20 an hour, which isn't true. That's in five years, it's $20 an hour. Mm-hmm. If you're this large, if mm-hmm. you're this, it's 14 or 12 mm-hmm. or 15, depending on which city you're, you're talking about. And yet, you know, Google tries to do the um, first slot as the answer to your question, mm-hmm. as opposed to sources with the answer. Mm-hmm. And what's taken place is that it's actually shows up as $20 an hour, which is wrong. Today, the minimum wage in Seattle is $15 an hour. So people have figured out how to game Google for mm-hmm. ideological reasons. Mm-hmm. There's you know you can't organize the earth's information if the information you're providing is inaccurate. So they need to get on top of that.
1: Well that, that that's the exact point. You're talking about the paid versus organic listings and organic listings do have some sort of credibility or yes. or check. And again, someone is someone has game that and Google would rather not do anything, nor Facebook, to suppress anybody from any viewpoint around either giving them eyeballs or money. And they're going to have to step in and say, we have some standards, it'll cost them money. Mm-hmm. But in the long run, I think they'll be better off and we'll be Well,
0: wrong. the alternative is enough people coming around and saying, I can't trust Google anymore. By the way, the reason Google became Google is, I can trust Google because of their crowdsourced algorithm, their page mm-hmm. rank worked better than everybody else once it becomes clear that too often that no longer works and you're getting a gamed answer that's inaccurate mm-hmm. their business model you know they don't have a moat their moat is essentially they're better than everybody else yeah once that falls away they're yeah. in trouble so they should really they should protect that like the crown jewels and they don't
1: i think mean, i think you're absolutely right Barry i would argue that google so far has more credibility than any than any objectively evaluated entity in the world. Um, we've talked about the last time I was there. I think Google is a modern man's God, that as we become more educated and wealthier, our, the number of people who attend church or, or think of religion as playing a large part in their life decreases. Mm-hmm. But modern-day anxieties around sickness, why do bad things happen, what happens after we die, um, those anxieties either stay flat or increase. So the decline in the belief or, or the ability to get comfort from religion in concert with increasing anxiety has created this void and I think Google has has filled that void. One out of five queries to Google have never been asked before in the history of mankind. Really? That's fascinating. Think about a friend, a rabbi, a priest, that one out of 20% of the questions they get have never been asked before because they have so much credibility. Google, Google is a modern man's god. It used to be, look to the skies, pray, will my son be all right? Now it's Google query symptoms and treatment of croup.
0: So now here's the problem with that, and this goes back to them mm-hmm. protecting the crown jewels. I've had doctors, my favorite quote from a friend who's a doctor. Don't go to Google. <laughs> what he says all the time is, yeah. of course your Google search is the equivalent of seven years of medical school. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. So uh, whether it's um, uh, any of the online medical things if if you put any <laughs> if you put any symptoms into Google mm-hmm. you will come up with a list of things and if you're a hypochondriac Google certainly oh, yeah. is is your your best friend but the problem is I don't know how trustworthy especially in the age not only of of vaxxers but let's use the phrase agnotology mm-hmm. culturally constructed ignorance whether it's global warming or vaccines or Mm -hmm. work your way down the list of things that, Mm -hmm. you know, 9-11 was an inside job and Mm -hmm. it's just a run of insanity. That sort of stuff has found more and more fertile ground to grow in in the internet era. There was some advantage to when there was only three broadcast stations Mm -hmm. because that sort of junk never made it past the uh, gatekeepers. So did a lot of positive things never made it past the gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. So now we have- to a fire hose, and it's becoming increasingly challenging for people to identify what is accurate and what is false.
1: Yeah, and and what's interesting in the face of those problems, though, uh, Google still is the most trusted. I believe it's the most trusted entity in the world. Really, what if you you were talking about a hospital right here, right now? All of a sudden, you get very worried about a health. Do you, what do you do first? Immediately. You call your doctor first or go to your immediately.
0: Google immediately. Well, you you do both because you need. It takes two weeks to see the doctor, unless you're Mm -hmm. you're bleeding out. And second, the next thing you do is look for hospitals with a specialty of whatever you suspect, 100%.
1: Well, not even looking for a hospital, but you start trying to self-diagnose and understand more about it. Mm. I I do believe that Google has, right now, more authority than any entity likely in the history of mankind. Wow, that's astonishing. I only have you for uh, uh, so many minutes left, so I
0: wanted to get to my favorite questions. God, I have runs and runs of stuff that we're not going to get to. Before I forget, uh, biggest winner of 2017, Netflix.
1: Netflix, operating system for joy in our lives. Um, You look at, uh, in sum, I think that the economy is bifurcated. There's only two sets of winners, and it's a small number of companies. What I refer to as Benjamin Button, Companies, The companies that age in reverse. When you turn on Waze and you use it, it gets better. The majority of products from the economic titans of yesterday, General Motors and Unilever, they aged. They got worse. When I used a car, when I used toothpaste, it declined in value. The companies that are garnering the disproportionate spoils of our modern day economy are Benjamin Button. They age in reverse. Every time you do a Google search, it gets one three billionth better, the product. (laughs) Every time you turn on Waze, it gets better for everybody else. Now a Google company, right? That's right. Facebook, every time you use it, the product gets better for everybody else. That's one set of winners. The other set of winners are the companies that help other companies reduce costs. Accenture, most successful services company in the world, Mm -hmm. is effectively helping big companies cut costs. Outsourcing companies, helping companies cut costs. So effectively, our economy, the winners, are bifurcating into companies that age in reverse or companies that take care of the aged. You're either you're either Benjamin Button or you're dying or you're t- you're caring for the sick. Those are the two companies that are working right now.
0: We we began by referencing the four horsemen. Mm-hmm. It's
1: always the next natural question is yeah. who's the fifth? Horseman? So I went off on a tangent there with my whole Benjamin Button rap, but I effectively think Netflix does take information around your viewership. It's very simple, but it's very powerful. Last night I'm watching House of Cards season four episode eight, and Netflix is smart enough to go. If Scott likes season four, episode eight, we think he's gonna like season four, episode nine, and they start auto-playing it. And it sounds basic, but it is the notion of, of, of an artificial intelligence figuring out what you want. And if you look at my home screen on Netflix, it has a bunch of stuff I want to watch. There are now more people, more millen- millen- millennials, more millennials watch Netflix or have Netflix than have cable TV. Wow! So arguably Netflix should be worth more then all of cable TV. If you think that millennials are the generation, they have the most disposable income. They're the ones that are going to go into their prime earning. Years. Larger than so, boomers now. I think they do. A, I think also they do a fantastic job. The iOS is our mobile system for what I'll call the utility in our life. Amazon is our operating system for commerce. Facebook, I think, is a little bit our operating system for love and relationships. And I think Netflix is becoming our operating system for joy. I think it's. Got an opportunity to be a two or three hundred billion dollar market cap company.
0: And Amazon Video actually will immediately start playing the next episode until yep. you tell it until you tell it to stop. It'll yep. it'll just jack right into that. All right. So let's go into our favorite
1: Oh, you didn't do biggest losers though. Biggest loser seventeen. Okay. Snapchat.
0: Snap we said that earlier. Snapchat. Snapchat. You think the yeah. IPO is gonna be the mark the high price? Of of Snapchat,
1: I think it, I think it'd be, be better for our economy if it did well because we need a third player in the ecosystem outside of Google and Facebook. But I think Snapchat is going to uh, get public, go crazy because of pent up demand from retail investors who've been excluded from Uber and Airbnb. Um, and then I think it's going to the, then it's going to be sort of a slow slow moving train wreck. Here's who I have down for your losers
0: theme from 2017: traditional advertisers. We talked about them. Twitter. We talked about them. Yahoo, we talked about them. Here's one we didn't talk about, Pinterest. Yeah. Why is Pinterest a loser?
1: Uh, fantastic fantastic product, not a great business. Uh, immature management team that thinks it's in the business of art, not in the art of business. Again, another failure on the part of the board. And one of the things about venture capital is if you manage to get, you have an obligation to get the highest valuation possible. But the problem is when you raise money at, I think, a 12 or $13 billion market value. A little value. rich. Well, then you've got all these prefs. Um, the company should have been bought for $5 billion and everybody would have done really well. But mm-hmm. now they've convinced people to invest at 12 or 13 There's effectively only three or four buyers of Pinterest. Of all the brands we track at L2, we don't know any actually buying advertising uh-huh. on Pinterest. So I That's think, again, this is a failure of a board. There's very few CEOs that can go from A to Z. I think they have a genius CEO in terms of product. He's not the guy to take it to the next level, and the board has failed to make the hard decisions around that. Management turnover there has been an absolute uh, uh, the word I would uh, want to use debacle. Is debacle. Okay. I was going to. I was going to. Use another term, but uh, <laughs> I was going to say cluster something, but mm-hmm. cluster, it, debacle. It, a cluster debacle, cluster uh, debacle. So yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a fantastic company. I think it's wildly overvalued. Twitter overvalued, most overvalued company in the world right now. Uh-huh. Harry? WeWork, seventeen billion dollars. We looked at a WeWork <laughs> space
0: and it was fantastic. It's if fantastic. I was forty years younger. And in the world of tech, these tiny little spots. Great
1: great company, great concept, might even be worth a billion dollars. But right now, if you look at WeWork, it's trading at $440,000 per customer. If you look at their valuation, if you take the majority of the WeWork buildings they're in and you Mm. take the floor they've leased and put in a cool coffee bar, great marketing, great concept, great business model, and it is a great business and a great business model, but that floor is now worth more than the entire building they're leasing that floor. So is it a great company? Yes. Is it a great idea? Yes. Is it worth 10 to 20%? Of what it's worth now, yes. Most overvalued company in the world. You I know, think. it's the same thing as a Regis or there's a handful of companies
0: that do the office shares. Yeah. They just made it younger, hipper. There's a bar and a, and yeah, a coffee no. lobby, la, coffee lounge in the ground floor. The one on Bryant Park is
1: funky and hip. They do a fantastic look, Twitter's an amazing company. I think it's worth a billion, two billion dollars, which puts it at about 70% worth less than it is now. Mm-hmm. All of these companies are amazing. I'm not taking anything away from them. The problem is when you layer in their valuation, they make no sense.
0: So let's talk about a couple of other things on your loser list.
1: Jet.com, recently purchased by Walmart, the I think. Three and right? a half billion dollar hair plugs. trying to make a, <laughs> trying to make Walmart going through a midlife crisis, trying to hang with the cool kids, not recognizing it's a mature company that should be slowing down its capex and redu- you know, and spending a ton of cash back to shares, says we, we have a culture problem. It's the most expensive aqua hire in history, $3.5 billion or about $6.5 million per employee, wow. will be the biggest write-down in the history of retail. And what about Dollar Shave Club? You, you've said another things... another great company, uh, Dollar Shave Club. Was that a billion dollar acquisition? Billion dollars. I think about. I think about three and a half million dollars per employee. Losing money, supposedly had discovered a new model for acquiring customers online. Gillette spent $50 million on TV advertising last year. Dollar Shave Club spent $55 million on TV advertising. The biggest winner in the Dollar Shave Club acquisition was Procter & Gamble, who had a competitor taken out of the marketplace on Unilever's balance sheet. That's fantastic.
0: All right, so let's get to my favorite questions before we run out of time. We've talked about your background, although I have to ask, you were at UCLA and and Berkeley, right? Yep.
1: Um, Public schools all the way through, just like you. Uh,
0: that's right. I went to SUNY Stony Brook. We, uh, the joke was uh, Berkeley, the Stony Brook of the West. But last week it was twenty degrees. Do you do you feel like you miss a little bit of California when New York weather gets like Any, this? Anybody
1: who's from California, when you come into LA and you get in your car and you go to In and Out Burger, which is my my pattern. You sort of wonder wait, what was I thinking, ever leaving here? But then you're there for a week, and you're like, "Oh, now I remember." I don't know. It's pretty nice out
0: there. It's fantastic <laughs> nice out, there. out there.
1: If if you, you and know, I are New York guys, though, you I'm and I are born both, and bred. Yeah, yeah we're... born
0: and bred. To me, California would be fantastic yeah. if you could follow the neutron bomb and start over. My, I, my second. I love California, but every time I'm there, I'm like, "Oh, now I remember why." No, I my, my second
1: life, midlife crisis. I'm moving to LA, running a Porsche, losing money in movies, and and and. <laughs> And, and dying under suspect circumstances. I'm looking forward to it.
0: <laughs> well, off air, I'll tell you my favorite San Francisco story that's like, oh, that's, I love this place, but I, I consider myself, you know, socially progressive, left of center, New York liberal, and I go out there and I'm Attila the Hun. No, they it's think, out there. They think I nuts. am like Genghis Khan. They're just, oh, so you're really an extreme right winger. I'm like, no, you people are crazy. I'm yeah. pretty center center left. You're just astonishing. Um, and I, I, I repeat this over and over. I love California. Uh, I have family in La Jolla. We spend time out there. One of the most beautiful yeah, places, Newport beautiful. Beach, Amazing. spectacular. Yeah. San Francisco is
1: a world class city. Most I, beautiful city in America, it I, really is.
0: I can't imagine. And every time when you look, you travel a lot. Yeah. Every country I go to, every city I go to, I'm like. This place is fantastic. Like, uh, we were in Copenhagen not too long ago. I'm like, wow, this is a great city. Yeah. I'm not sure I could live here, but it's a fantastic city. Yep. San Francisco, every time I'm there, I'm like, I could live here. And then by the end of the trip, it's like, you know, I can I I don't know. They they would not put up with my New York shtick there for very long. I can get away with it here. I can't get away with it there. Is These are is good problems. All great places. <laughs> All right. So let's talk... Um, uh, 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 I'll, I'll i'll do the abbreviated version of our, our favorite list early mentors who were some of the people that influenced the way you think about business and digital
1: so probably my first business mentor was a guy named david Ocker, who uh, inspired me in my second year of business school and i decided that's what i wanted to do with the rest of my life he's a professor considered the father of modern management i had some really nice uh kind of older brother father figure like people who were mentors for me right out of business school. Um, a guy named Pat Connolly who just retired as CMO of Williams-Sonoma, has been a, a kind of a mentor for me as an adult adult person, um, as an adult. Warren Hellman invested in everything I did, the venture, uh, the buyout guy out there. Uh, some great, some of my clients at profit. A guy named Gord Schenk, who was the CMO of uh, Levi's Canada, was very generous with me. There was just some nice... Very nice, you know, decent people who took an interest in me and were 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 very good to me. I feel very blessed that way. I was raised in a single parent household. My dad was around, but we uh, I didn't live with him, and uh, I was very fortunate at a very young age. A lot of you know older, mostly men took an interest in me professionally and were very generous with me. Uh, uh, So I I consider myself very fortunate around mentors. And anyone who doesn't have mentors, it's going to be tough to. Be successful because you need people on your shoulder who can give you advice even when they're not around because you get to know them and you get to kind of channel how they would handle a given situation. So those are mentors. What about business people or other professionals
0: who influence the way you approach business? You run a, one very successful business currently. Mm-hmm. A, a few of your prior businesses, Profit and, and Red Envelope, both were mm-hmm. very successful. Who Who were the big influences from a business perspective?
1: You know, so my dad gave me a bunch of Peter Jarker books when I was younger mm-hmm. and I read those and I, I tried you know, that that was sort of the basis I think for how I, I um, approach business. But I wouldn't say that like any one person or individual stands out. I don't I don't model myself. You know, the only thing you get as you get older you have a code and I'm openly critical of a lot of managers and Every person I admire in history has one thing in common they've given powerful people a hard time. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's okay to be critical of people as long as they're more powerful than me so that gives me a very broad target set.
0: Punch up as opposed to punching yeah. down.
1: Yeah. It's if you're being critical of people who have the same or less influence or power than you do that's not being critical or starting a catalog. You're, bullying. you're just bullying. 100%. Yeah. So the people I admire most in in, in journalism and, uh, in, uh, you know, I wouldn't say in business, but have never been afraid to, as, as long as they're not being mean spirited, call out uh, other business people. But I wouldn't say I have. Like, you know, there's so many incredible people you can look to now in business and you can learn so much about them. But I'm more about, you know, historical figures. I'm, I'm a big fan of Winston Churchill and, You know, folks like that. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't say there's any kind of dominant. I'm not a religious person. I'm not. uh, I don't have what I'd call a a core set of a core set of people I look to for for thoughtful. So, so
0: let me digress a bit because you just referenced something interesting. Um, The CEO of Under Armour came out and said uh, some positive things about President Trump. He's an asset to the business community. Their single biggest endorser, Stephen Curry of the Golden State Warriors, came out and said, well, he's right that he's an asset if you drop the E.T., and then that that got a little viral, and then the question became, they had uh, the CEO of Under Armour and Curry had a conversation, and apparently all is well there. What happens with the consumer society where we just saw what happened with Nordstrom dropping the Ivanka line? Is this going to be a litmus test amongst consumers
1: and or their high-profile spokespeople? So in the movie Broadcast News, William Hurst asks Albert Brooks, what do you do if your real life outpaces or is better than your dreams? And Albert Brooks turns to him and says, keep it to yourself. <laughs> and that's—so Kevin Plank handled it poorly. I can almost guarantee you that when you're the CEO of a consumer company and you come out for or against— uh, any, anybody, anybody. You're alienating, You're alienating half. half. It, right. It's just it, so I'm not faulting him for a little less than half this time. Yeah, I'm not faulting <laughs> him for being positive. Had, it would have been the same stupid move if he'd been critical of the right. president. Nordstrom handled it correctly. They basically said, "Look, her stuff's not selling." They even said, "We like her. She's nice. We like her and her team, but this stuff's not selling. This is a business decision." In some political views, from the CEO, are are best kept to yourself. And when when Trump draws you in, I think you have a, a right or an obligation to respond in as thoughtful mm-hmm. a, a way as possible. But actually, a lot of the CEOs have handled it really well. I think the CEO of Ford has handled it really mm-hmm. well. I think I think Nordstrom handled it very well. They what decided- about the
0: um, delete Uber campaign, which which basically forced him, the CEO of Uber, off of Trump's business advisory board?
1: Yeah, consumers are getting very savvy around how quickly they can rally around an issue and then they're smart to hit people in their pocketbook. That's when that's when you really see action, right?
0: Boycotts used to be more or less meaningless. Every now and then one would have an effect, but between Facebook and others Twitter and other social media, it seems that boycotts can be organized and put into place much more quickly and much more effectively than than was true in the past.
1: Yeah, it's an exciting time from that end because you can rally people to a good cause. It, it, Travis being forced off of Trump's ad- business advisory council was a, you know, pretty pretty interesting thing. But the politi- the politic politicization, if you will, politicization mm-hmm. of companies now has become really. Weird. And, you know, I don't mean. I find I love politics, and I'm exhausted by yeah. it all. It's every day. Just you know, I just want to watch. I just want to watch Modern Family every once in a while and not have politics be front. You know, have. I, I can't even watch MSNBC and Rachel Maddow. And I wonder if this is kind of officially another leg down on television because I think TV and media and politics have literally just exhausted us and we're ready for about a 30 year break. Except
0: I just saw this headline the other day. For the first time, Colbert beats yeah. Jimmy Fallon. Fallon's yeah. considered a sort of nice guy, inoffensive. Has had Trump on Colbert has been hammering yeah. uh, Trump. So has um, uh, who follows Fallon uh, well, later tonight. Seth, Seth Meyers. Seth Meyers. They, they found close, their voice. Yeah, they, and and their voice has been to push back against uh, the president. It's good for. It's not even good politics. It's good ratings. Did you
1: see SNL on Saturday night? Oh, of course. Oh, the, my God,
0: the the, the the opening is hilarious.
1: But it's not just the opening. I don't know if you saw the last one. It was literally the entire show. The, going the
0: segment that. with Kellyanne Conway. Yeah, as Jeff he and Jack Sessions.
1: Tapers. Uh, no, yeah. with Jack. Oh, with Kelly Conway. Yeah, Kellyanne Conway.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, that was just. Uh, that was six minutes of. Uh, and you know the White House is watching. They're watching this it. Yeah. Seething, fuming.
1: Yeah, it's it, it's just so. I mean, it's just so. We're, we're, like I we're just totally in uncharted territory. And I, I personally, I mean, I have fantasies about this. I've done some activist investing. If Twitter goes below 10, I want to signal it now. I don't think I don't think I have to file a 13-D here, but I'd like to buy somewhere between 1% and 2% of the company, form a group, renominate everyone but Jack Dorsey, and shut down uh, the POTUS and the real Donald Trump account based on- Really? Well, I think he's violated their code of conduct. Well, I think certainly has, sure. Harass people, hate speech. I think they have- they have been inconsistent in their application of their standards around. I think they're some afraid of this. They won't do that. I think we're all afraid, but I, <laughs> I, I think we got to turn that thing off. My personally. my hope for the election was when
0: November fourth came and went. That's it. We're done. No more. Right. And that, ha- it, if anything, it just became louder and one-sided. But what it, do
1: you? You're a markets guy, Barry. The markets have gone up. What do you think? What's gone on here? Why are the markets gone well, up? Well, that's easy. Devil, w- you know.
0: Yeah. Well, first, the narrative about uh, about what was going on, I think, misunderstood it. Markets are looking at a trillion dollar infrastructure spends that's stimulative. Big tax cuts may create Mm -hmm. deficits down the road. Nobody was a bigger deficit spender than Reagan. It was fantastic for the stock market. Mm -hmm. So you you rejigger the corporate tax code. You repatriate two trillion Mm -hmm. dollars of Apple and everybody else's cash cash. that's overseas. It comes back. Mm -hmm. You're looking at you know this is the could be Most people look at the markets as they time it from the bottom in March 09 and say, Mm -hmm. look, the market's seven years old. That's the wrong definition of a secular bull market. We broke out to the new highs in 2013, which means this market is three or four years old as a new bull market. Mm -hmm. And you've had a number of 20% resets. People tend to forget that. So if this market is three or four years old, hey, the last 20% correction, which we had January of last year, remember the whole conversation- Mm -hmm. People were saying, as January goes, so goes the market. Uh, that was our 1987. We could be a dozen years left from 2000. And this could really run. Plus, you look at the rest of the world. If you want mm-hmm. to invest cheaply, emerging markets are really cheaply. Mm-hmm. If you want to adjust, uh, invest aggressively, you look at the worst place in the world, mm-hmm. a combination of Japan and Europe, and mm-hmm. you invest there. But the United States is, is expensive because we... We want the multiple that Apple and Google and Facebook do. Everything is as bad as people feel, as much as the middle class is getting squeezed, as much as the popularist uprising, call it Trump, call it Brexit, call Mm -hmm. it Le Pen in France. Overall, we're the ones who came through the financial debacle, which Mm -hmm. we essentially caused. We came through it the best. We we ripped the Band-Aid off first. We didn't do what we should have, but we did something. Mm -hmm we we basically bailed out a bunch of banks we propped up uh, a bunch of financial system that was mm-hmm. ready to collapse i would have done it differently i would have sent everybody to bankruptcy court if i was benevolent dictator and you would have been much mm-hmm. it would have been more painful but you'd be much mm-hmm. healthier that much sooner but here we are 7 years later we have a functioning economy mm-hmm. essentially under 5% unemployment so we're the you know we're we're the cleanest shirt in the in the hamper, so to speak, and so that's why the economy and the market continues to go higher. How are you interviewing
1: me? You're, you're, to you're be- listening to Masters in Business <laughs> with Scott Galloway. I'm here with my guest, Barry Ritholtz.
0: So so <laughs> let's go back to our questions. You mentioned Drucker. What are some of your favorite books? By the way, all you need to do is pull my string. That's it. I'm gone. I've watched you. I've watched you. I was
1: awake through most of that. That was pretty good. <laughs> Favorite books. What are some of your favorite books? You send it every time. So there are a few things I'm embarrassed about because I like to think of myself as educated. I don't speak a second language. Me neither. And the reality is I read a ton. I don't read a lot of books. The books that changed my life were the Peter Drucker books. Which ones? Give me the titles. Uh, What is it? The 20-Minute Man or The Modern Manager or Mm -hmm. um, uh, his uh, his early one about the Austrian economy. Uh, This is really obtuse that my dad sent me, but- I forget the titles, and then and then uh, influence on me is I'm kind of a war buff. I read uh, when I was in high school, I read all the Herman Wook books, uh-huh. War and Remembrance, The Winds oh, of War, sure. um, and I also just love John Irving books. I think he's just so strange. John Irving, yeah, you know, The World According World to Cars, Garp, Sidehouse movie. Did yeah. you like that movie? Probably Robin Williams' best film. Really?
0: Yeah, I would I would challenge that. I'm going to have to come up with a list. What would you
1: like that's better? <sighs>
0: uh dead poet society yeah he, um
1: good morning good Vietnam. will hunting good will hunting good morning yes yeah, but
0: he's a he's a minor character in in good will hunting yeah uh, dead poet society he's a
1: I, I would really have to yeah, and like on the comedies
0: uh, you know some of his comedies were uh mrs doubtfire is a hilarious yeah. movie and he's wonderful in another
1: that. one he's bringing i think it's called 24 hour photo He's actually better at playing a psychopath than a comedian. Yeah, very I haven't seen man. that. I
0: heard good things about that.
1: Uh, it's, it's good so, said. so
0: Herman, woke
1: Peter Drucker, and
0: John uh, Irving. Yeah, that's John, what I'm.
1: That's what I'm sticking with.
0: The, there's a scene in the the reason I have an issue with Garp. There's a scene where he's in the driveway. We won't go into the details. Yeah, but he's got the woman with him when he's yeah. rear-ended. I think that yeah. scene ruined the book for me. If sort of, you remember sort what of the talking
1: about. low budget low budget gender transition. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. It was before Tranny was yeah, was a, a uh, That's a good
1: that's a good scene. <laughs> it's horrific in the book. Glenn Close plays his mother. She's outstanding in that as well. Uh, there there's some um She must have been excited to get a casting call to be Robin Williams' mother. It's like right, when Sally she's five Field 5 years younger than When her. Sally yeah. Field was cast as Tom Hanks' mother and Forrest Gump and I think she was 6 years older than him. All
0: right. I, I... Uh, isn't wasn't Robin Williams older than her?
1: I don't know. I don't remember. It,
0: it could have been that. All right. I know. I only have a finite amount of time. Let's talk about um, what you do to keep mentally and physically fit outside of work. You
1: mentioned you swim. Yeah, I'm a I'm I'm actually pretty into physical fitness. I try and do CrossFit three or four times a week. It's How are your knees? I've been really blessed with that stuff. I think think physical fitness is a gift from God. It's my antidepressant. It Mm -hmm. keeps me sort of even keel, sort of. I struggle with anger. I get pissed off at stuff I shouldn't. But (laughs) working out for me has just been a real, like I said, just a a gift from God. And I tell my kids in my class that if you are in good shape, you're going to make more money. You're going to be happier. You're going to have more sex. You're going to have more options in terms of who you mate with. You're going to feel more confident. You're going to be a better person to your friends, your pets, um, your neighbors. That it is absolutely one of the most one of the things you find that's consistent across the most successful people in business mm-hmm. is not that they went to great schools. It's not that they're, you know, it's not that they're religious. The thing you find among almost all of them is that they exercise every day.
0: So I'm gonna do a really brief digression. The anger issue you yeah. referenced, yeah. that's a, a, a hot ember, a hot coal that's yeah. in the core of your being. Yep. And you know how if you're ever working with a fire, you can, you can blow on that and, and get that ember going again? Yeah. In all of your presentations, yep. that's a very channeled, focused anger with all of the vitriol removed. It's and and I share your that issue. Yeah. But my, my wife says to me, "Where the hell does all this anger come from?" Yeah, I think from? it's chemical. Um. I don't know what it is, but it's yeah. it's a it's a fuel source that you can tap and redirect. And when I watch you take apart, um, a particular segment. And and again, I'm going to repeat for people: if you are not going on YouTube and seeing Galloway's videos on a weekly basis, as well as the DLD presentations. Thanks for saying that. Which you always make entertaining, and you always, you're fearless to embarrass yourself. So you do the George Michael piece.
1: Go to what's easy.
0: (laughs) And and they're always entertaining, but they're (laughs) filled with data, filled with information. But I could see that there is a driving something that you want people to get to the correct answer, And it's frustrating that they're all looking in the wrong place and all coming to the wrong decision. So maybe anger and frustration are two sides of the same coin, but that's pop psychology for 100. That's what I see driving you is getting people to the right place.
1: I think you're being generous. I just think I have some chemistry <laughs> that's all screwed up. Yeah, and anchor off of negative. Given how fortunate I am, I don't think there's anything I can blame it on in my childhood. I there's there's no one I can blame it on. Single single parent. There's your that could be I it. I had a great mom though, and I had a nice upbringing. And you know, it's this isn't a sob story. We had a nice life. She so and it's I, chemical is what you're claiming. She, is. You know, she and I got to take vacations, and we had a nice relationship, and. I went to nice schools, and I had nice friends, but I'm definitely going to be on something. I think as the the side effects of the antidepressants lessen and my anger increases, those lines are going to cross, and I'm ready. Bring right, it on. All
0: right, our last two questions. Yeah. Um. So you work with a lot of students and millennials. What sort of advice do you give someone who says... I wanna
1: go into fill in the blank, technology, digital content. I think about this a lot, a couple things. One, uh, don't follow your passion. Most people who tell you to follow your passion, unfortunately, it's every speaker at lunchtime in Stern is already rich. (laughs) Figure out what you're good at, Mm -hmm. and then try and really expand. And, And being great at something will give you the currency and the economic reward and the psychological reward such that you'll start to love it. So your job as a young person is to figure out something you're good at, not not your passions. I was I was meant to be quarterback of the Jets, I have a good plan of vision, a decent arm. I would have been loved it uh, I, but I wasn't I was mediocre at it as mm-hmm. an athlete growing up. Uh, what I ended up being semi great at was starting starting companies and analytics. find out what you're good at. get to a business that has recurring revenue. Recurring revenue companies are valued at a multiple of revenues versus a multiple of EBITDA. You want to be in a recurring revenue company. You want to be, in my opinion, getting more tactical. The two technologies in the next three to five years are voice and Mm -hmm. messaging. I'd want to find companies in the ecosystem of voice and messaging. Get to a city. Two-thirds of the economic development is going to be in within a bike ride of a major world-class engineering university. Make sure you live near one of those and get into that ecosystem. You pointed out that most of the
0: major successful companies in the S&P 500 are all right near a major
1: uh, university, a renowned university. How can you tell if a kid's successful, how long does it take him or her to get to the biggest city in their country? And then how long does it take them to get to London in Europe, Shanghai, Shanghai, Beijing, or Hong Kong, or Singapore in Asia, or San Francisco, New York, in the US, our most talented human capital is flocking to these barter town Full, full body contact business centers and your your ability to get the skill set, the competitive nature, the grit, and the opportunities is very geographically sensitive. The intellectual capital is
0: there. And our final question, what is it that you know about technology, digital brands, marketing, startups today that you wish you knew 20 plus years ago when you began?
1: It sounds very um, passe and it's not that, that, not that romantic, but- um, in the one of my uh, venture capitalist, Larry Bond says, "Success is in the agency of others. Trying to find good people and then overcompensate, sh- show empathy for them, really try and figure out what it is they want, and make your successes there such that they're loyal to you." Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was a little bit more Darwinian as a, as a as a younger person, and also just get to a business with um, recurring revenue. I know that sounds. It's ridiculous, but no, it works. The, the business of software is just a better business. The business of owning a gym versus par- private training is a be- being the insurance company that gets the bills everybody every year, as opposed to the doctor, the healthcare provider. Recurring revenue, I think, sorts out and get towards something that is one or two degrees separated from the plummeting price and processing power, or something around technology. Technology is eating the world we have been speaking with professor scott galloway of
0: nyu stern school of business if you want to learn more go to his youtube channel just search for scott galloway at l2 or uh we didn't talk about your book you have a book coming out in september We'll revisit that when that book comes out, Winners and Losers. Yep,
1: Winners and Losers. Who's publishing that? Portfolio, Penguin Random Random House. Not self-published. You should be self published Just
0: barely. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch, down an inch on Apple iTunes. You could see any of the other 130 such conversations. I would be remiss if I did not thank my booker, Taylor Riggs, my recording engineer, Medina, or Michael Batnick, my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Masters in Business is brought to you by Proper Cloth, the leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.